you take your Bibles with me and go to Psalm 88 for our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. If the stead, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Well, as uh, Joe said, that is a dark psalm. It ends on the word darkness. And uh, the reason why we chose that text and actually this as the beginning of our sermon uh, series is because we are beginning a new set of sermons that will take us through at least the end of the year on uh, this topic, dealing with doubt. Dealing with doubt. And we're going to this text because for the very reason that it expresses some of the questions and feelings that uh, I'm sure that some of you have gone through. Um, it is not the kind of psalm that, or words that we'd hear someone say and then instantly conclude, hey, let's, let's make that their song of the month, okay? Don't we want to sing that song together? No, it, there's, it's, it's very dark, and that's actually why we're dealing with it this morning. A man named Elie Wiesel, some of you might have heard of, heard of him, was a survivor of the Nazi Holocaust, the attempt to exterminate uh, the Jews in, uh, in Europe during the uh, World War II. Uh, and after he went through his uh, horrific experiences, uh, he wrote a book called Night. And in that book, there's a rather famous section, and I'll read it to you. He says this, Never shall I forget that night, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget 
the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Of course, uh, Elie Wiesel wasn't the only one who survived the Holocaust, and it wasn't the only one who was in concentration camps. Uh, another survivor uh, was a lady by the name of Corrie Ten Boom, and she also wrote of her experiences. Uh, in the book, The Hiding Place, uh, she and her sister were in one of the concentration camps, her sister Betsy, who did not survive, and she tells the story of as her sister grew weaker and weaker uh, and closer and closer to death, her sister was uh, very concerned that if they ever got out of that concentration camp, they'd be able to share a message with the world. And she recounts this one time, it was winter, Betsy had grown very ill, the sleet stung them as they, Betsy was on a, uh, her sister Betsy was on a stretcher, they, they put the, they were taking her to the infirmary, they put the stretcher on the ground, and Betsy was whispering something to Corey, and so Corey had to lean down to, to hear what she was saying, and she said this, Corey writes, I leaned down to make out Betsy's words, we must tell people what we have learned here, we must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. And Corey would go on to reach millions of people with the message that no matter what, deep, what pit you're in, God's love is still deeper. But as I compare these two accounts, these two responses to suffering, and no doubt both Elie Wiesel and Corey Ten Boom wrestled with agonizing questions why would God allow this? Why would God allow evil people to trample the innocent into the dust? Why is it that Elie Wiesel's faith was consumed and Corrie Boom's faith was calibrated? Why is it that the, the same suffering, I mean, the same horrific experiences, they, they both went through virtually the same thing, and yet one, one person came out with his faith utterly strangled and the other came out with his, her faith strengthened. It's that question that I want us to explore in the course of this series. How do we deal with doubt? How do we deal with experiences that would cause us to question deeply the things that we believe? And as we go through the series, we're, one thing that we're going to discover is that while doubt does leave us vulnerable, times of doubt, they, they really do leave us vulnerable they can lead to deepening our faith. You might think of, of doubt like what happens when you take a step forward. Whenever you, you can't help but doing this, and I, as soon as you'll see, it'll make sense to you. When I take a step, I have to, at some point, go on just one foot, right? And the moment I take one foot off and I'm standing on one foot is the moment which you can easily knock me over. I'm most vulnerable. But if I move forward, if I take that step, I end up not only landing on both feet and becoming more solid, but I've made progress. I think doubt plays a similar role in our lives where there is a momentary time of vulnerability. Yes, it's a dangerous time. Yes, it's a time in which there's potential, potentially toppling over. And yet at the same time, it could be the time, the, the, a mo movement forward. Another way to think of a time of doubt is like an excavator, a big machine that, that with a giant metal claw reaches and begins scooping into the earth and, and creating this big crater. Doubt can do that. And the big crater that's being dug into the earth 
it can destroy, it can leave just this gaping hole, or it can be a deeper foundation to your faith. I think doubt could do that to us. And so that's, that's some of the things that we're going to be looking at as we uh, continue on in this series dealing with doubt. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 88, which, as I said, is uh, the dar- a dark psalm. In fact, uh, the commentators I, I read this past week in studying it agree that this is the darkest psalm which I'll be honest, is one of the reasons why when I did a series on the Psalms, um, both on Wednesday nights a few week, uh, years ago and a couple years ago on Sunday mornings, I skipped this one. <laughs> but I'm not going to skip it this time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to look at this. And so as we look at this, as we ask the question, how can this actually strengthen our faith? I want us to look at it from three angles, okay? I, I want us to, first of all, look at what or rather how the psal- uh, psalmist felt how he felt, and that's his darkness. I want us to look at what he did, that is his direction, and then what we can learn. That's our discoveries, okay? So we're going to look at what, how he felt, what he did, and what we can learn. Darkness, his darkness, his direction, and our discoveries. So first of all, how did he feel? Let's look at it from this angle. How did the psalmist, or I'm going to call him the singer because he's, uh, he's, this was meant to uh, be sung, how did he feel? Well, the, the, the summarizing word for this is darkness, and what is darkness if not the absence of light or four deepening shadows? And I want to point out four things that he was feeling, or four uh, things that were extinguished for him, four shades. And the first one is that he felt uh, overwhelmed. He felt overwhelmed. Uh, if you look at uh, verse uh, 3, he says, my soul is full of troubles. Look at verse 7, you see, your wrath lies heavy upon me, you overwhelm me with your waves. Look at verse 17, they surround me like a flood all day long, they close in on me altogether. Um, He feels like he's drowning. There's so many things surrounding him, and he has this, what what has been extinguished for him is a sense that he can manage his circumstances. Do you know what it's like to feel like you cannot manage your circumstances? Like you realize there's so much going on, you can't control it anymore. I like to live my life most of the time feeling like I'm someone in control of my circumstances, like I could manage this. When, when troubles come, I like them to come at least one at a time. And if they're going to come, let's make this manageable. Let's not surround ourselves with trouble. And yet what we learn from this is that doubt often comes not just with one event, but with the accumulation of events. We joke about the straw that broke the camel's back, but we know that the straw wouldn't have broken the camel's back if there hadn't been a million other pieces of straw all on top of the camel's back, and it was that final little straw that essentially caused there to be such an accumulation of weight that he collapses underneath the weight. That's the, that's the way it is with our doubt and our struggles. It's, just, it's not just that the, if you're a parent with kids, that the kids have trouble sleeping or that uh, you're having, facing stress at work. Uh, it's not just that uh, you're, you got an offender bender a couple weeks ago and you get a bunch of paperwork and trying to figure out how to pay for it. It's the, it's the accumulation of all these things then begins to creep in the, que- the question, is God really good? Does God really care? Is he really here? There are children and teenagers in our service this morning, as they are every morning. And you guys and girls are going through changes. Your bodies are changing. Your circumstances are changing. Maybe, maybe your parents' relationship seems to be changing for the worse. And all this can make you think, if this all is changing, then maybe God can't be trusted either. 
or you're, you're a single person and you see your friends that are getting into relationships and, and seem to be advancing in their career and having children and starting families. And it's like, if all that is happening for them but not for me, can, is God really fair? Is God really good? You see, it's the accumulation of all these things. It's the same when, you're, when you have a family and you feel the stress of providing for them or when you're aging and you feel the stress of, of the physical infirmities and the relational strains that come with children growing up and having their children and, and differences and you begin, all these things begin to pile up and, and you feel overwhelmed. You cannot manage your circumstances. And doubt often comes not with just one event, but with, with the accumulation of the events. This is something we learn from what the singer felt, his darkness. And second, um, another thing that was extinguished was his prospect for the future. He felt like he was near death. Uh, if you'll, uh, you'll look at this, this is really clear from we heard in the reading. He says in verse 6, uh, you are actually verse three. My life draws near to Sheol. Now, Sheol, if you're not familiar with that term, is simply a tra- transliteration of the of a Hebrew word that the, the Bible translators decide instead of trying to translate it, they're just going to give you what it sounds like in Hebrew because it refers to the generic term for the dead. The the King James version sometimes translates it hell, but it does not exclusively refer to hell. It re- just generally refers to the place of the dead. So what he's saying is this: It feels like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm near death. Now, not everybody in this room knows what it's like to feel like you're getting close to death. But some of you have. Like some of you, I've talked to you. You're in this room and you were going to a surgery and you honestly didn't know if you were going to come out, wake up from surgery. Or you're going to a, you, you had an accident and when, the, when you had the accident, you didn't know if you were going to live or die. Or, or some of you have a sickness right now, and this could be your final sickness. And the psalmist feels like that. He feels like his future is cut off, that, it, that has been extinguished for him. Now, the thing that, to note about that as it connects with doubt is that when you think that you have a long time to live, doubts can be tame. When you feel like life is just going to go on, you're healthy, there, there's, there's no problems, um, doubt feels different than it does when you feel like life is short. When, when, let me put it this way, when you're healthy and you feel like you have a long time to live, doubts, the difference between doubts as a healthy person and doubt as a dying person is the difference between looking at a picture of a lion in your living room and being in a cage with a lion. I mean, when you're looking at the picture of the lion in your living room, you can inspect it, you can critique it. I mean, you can just tear it up and throw it away for all that matters. But when you're in the cage with the lion, you have to deal with it. You see, when, when death seems to be approaching you, you don't have the luxury to deal with doubts in a detached, philosophical sort of way. You have to deal with them. They're staring right at you. They're, they're looking at you. You cannot be neutral toward them. You cannot just speculate about them. You, cannot not just fil- you can't just fil- philosophize about them. You can't rip it up or ignore it. You have to deal with it. And the psalmist, the singer here is saying, it, it feels like death is closing in on me. And, and by the way, these these rhetorical questions in verses 10, 11, and 12, they, are, they're not, they, they sound to us like he's doubting whether there's an afterlife. These questions are meant to be directed toward God, and, and they're a, a way of saying, God, don't you care that I'm going to die? Is this really what you want, God? That's what he's asking. Here's a third, there's a third thing that he's feeling here, and that is he's feeling abandoned. He's feeling abandoned. You see in verse Eight, you, ca- you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. The only friend I have left is darkness, he said. And it's not just, I mean, you think about it. One of the things that people find a lot of comfort in when they're suffering is people being with them in their suffering. 
Just someone to put an arm around their shoulder. Someone to say, I'm, I care for you. I'm, I'm with you. I, I love you. That's an gr- that, incredible comfort. In fact, someone has said this. I like this statement about friendship, that friendship, it uh, doubles life's joys and halves its sorrows. But what if you lose those friends? Well, then it seems like the joys of life have been cut in half and the sorrows multiplied. And what if it's not just the loss of friends in, fact, in that they couldn't be there, but they would, but they wouldn't be there if they could? Because he says, they've shunned me. And it's not just, it's not just the friends, the singer says. It's not just that my friends have abandoned me. He feels abandoned not just by people. He feels abandoned by God. It would be one thing if, if everybody has abandoned you and you're like, well, at least I have God. This is what David said in Psalm 27.10. He said, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Paul had this comfort in when he writes about this in 2 Timothy 4.16. He said there was a time when he had to stand trial for being a Christian, for preaching the gospel. And he said, when I had to stand trial, no one stood with me. The friends that I thought would be there, they weren't there. And yet he says, the Lord stood by me. But this singer doesn't have that feeling. He very clearly says, In verse um, uh, 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, if that weren't enough, enough, it almost seems like it can't get any darker. It does. And that is, the fourth shade of darkness is that he feels answerless. Answerless. The questions he asks they don't have answers. And at this point, we wish that the psalm would kind of make a turn. Didn't you wish that when you're hearing it read? Didn't you wish that there'd be a chorus that said something like, but what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you? I mean, don't, don't you just wish it would make a turn? Like, like in Psalm 73, when Asaph is, is saying, oh, I was, I was so vexed by the fact that wicked people are flourishing and righteous people are suffering, and the, and the psalm makes a turn, and then I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end, and I say God has put them into slippery places so that he might present his justice to us, and there is this entire shift in the psalm, and we're waiting for it, and we're waiting for it, in Psalm 88, we're waiting for it, it doesn't come. The psalmist is answerless. Now, before we move on to the second perspective, okay, we, I'm, I'm shifting from point one, and that is what the, what the psalmist, what the singer feels, that is his darkness. I think we could pause here and, and even just make a point of application. We can learn something from what he does with his feelings and what he doesn't do with his feelings. Even though this is dark, did you notice what he doesn't do. And I think that this, this is a, a very important point to make because what he does with his feelings, the way he handles his darkness, is different than the way that most approaches to pain and suffering, most philosophies or most religions would recommend that we do. Hearkening back to pre-Christian time, the, the Stoic philosophy, and there, it's made a research, it made a resurgence in the, in the Renaissance with, with neo-Stoicism. It still has a lot of followers today. The Stoic philosophy says the reason why you're suffering so much is because you're des- you have t- your desires are too big. You want too much. You set your heart too much on friends. You set your heart too much on comfort. If you just shrink your desires, you'll shrink your pain. 
So the strategy of the Stoic is to say, you're too attached. Just if you would, if you would love less, you would hurt less. Shrink your heart and shrink your pain. That's essentially what it's saying. He doesn't do this. I mean, he says, my heart is longing for companionship. My soul is thirsty for God. I want to see God. I want to be in the presence of God. I don't feel it. And that's why I feel in pain. That's why I'm struggling. But you see, that's totally different than the way, than a worldly, by worldly, I just mean like non from the Bible, not from the Bible. Worldly respect says, you want to deal with pain and suffering? Then shrink, minimize your desires. Another approach, which is a far more, less intellectual, less philosophical approach, is just maximize your, your pleasure, or rather, distract yourself. Drink more. Have more fun. Turn up the music. Crank up your experiences, and that will help minimize your pain. He doesn't do that either. You see, it is actually because he longs for the presence of God that he's experiencing this pain. And I think from this we can learn that, well, before I move on to that, I would, I would say one of the a modern or more modern articulation of this perspective comes from Bertrand Russell of the last century. Bertrand Russell was an atheistic philosopher, and he says this um, in, the, in this essay called A Free Man's Worship. He says, blind to good and evil, Reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. So there's nothing but matter. There's really no meaning. It's only matter. So what can humans do? Well, he says the best we can do is to be, quote, dis undismayed by the empire of chance, to preserve a mind free from the wanton tyranny that rules his outward life. In other words, he's saying you have to convince yourself. Here, here's this approach. You have to convince yourself that no matter how painful it feels right now, it's just an illusion. Now, the Christian faith doesn't teach us to do this at all. It frees us to be completely honest about our pain. And if you're not a Christian, like if, you, if you're coming into the, in Christianity and trying to figure out what, what, what it's all about, whatever complaints you have against Christianity, you cannot complain that it teaches us to have an unrealistic perspective on pain and suffering. You may, be, you may have been, been thinking, I can be a Christian because these Christian people seem like they're so optimistic and happy and super. Listen, a, a, real, a real approach, a real biblical perspective on things teaches us to be honest. In fact, it requires us to be honest about our feelings, not to be fake about it. Now, honesty, of course, does not equal faith, okay? So you can be honest about your feelings, but not truly believing. So let's look, we looked at the, what the singer felt, his darkness. Now let's look at what he did, okay? Let's look at what he did. There's something in this, in every verse of this psalm that you might have overlooked, it's easy to miss, something in every single verse that teaches us that this is not a psalm of despair. It's actually a psalm of deep faith. From beginning to end, this entire psalm is actually a psalm of faith, the deepest, sturdiest kind of faith you could even imagine. And that is from the very beginning, the psalmist has, as it were, slammed the door on despair. Despair's not getting out of a door. He's, he's shut the door. How? By beginning his, this entire psalm by calling out, O Lord God of my salvation. Because even though his feelings are dark, his entire direction is toward God. And that's where we see the, the light in this psalm. 
That's where we looking at this see the light in the psalm, is that even though the singer didn't see light, even though he didn't feel a sense of certainty, even though he didn't feel uh, uplifted, yet his entire orientation, his entire direction was to God in prayer. Prayer is the thing that we see throughout every verse in the psalm that tells us that this is not a psalm of despair. It is actually a psalm of deep trust. I want, you, I want us to look at uh, who he cries out to, who he prays to, and how he does it. So who he cries out to, he says, God of my salvation. That is, you can think about it this way. He's starting out this dark psalm. He's, he's saying this, I'm going to talk to the God who can save me. Th- this frames this whole entire discussion. Whatever I'm going to say, whatever I'm going to cry, however hard I'm going to sob, I'm doing it toward the God whom I, who I know can save me the God of my salvation. And notice how else he, de- he describes him. He refers to him as the Lord. Now, in your copy of the scripture, uh, probably the word, the, the name Lord is capital L and then a small O-R-D, cap, small cap O-R-D, which tell, this is the, the translator's way of alerting us to the fact that the, the Hebrew word behind that is the word Yahweh, which is God's personal name. It's the name that he revealed to his people when he made a promise with them. So in Exodus chapter 3, right before God leads his people out of this slavery in Egypt, he reveals himself to a very important figure in biblical history, a man by the name of Moses. And he says to Moses, my name is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. This is God's way of saying, I'm making a promise with you, and the promise is unbreakable. God says, I stake my life on this. I will not forsake you. And no Jewish singer or no Jewish person could could read the name Yahweh, hear the name Yahweh, Yahweh without remembering that God, the God of our salvation, is the God who makes an unbreakable promise that he will never, ever, never, ever abandon us. He will, he will be my God. I will be his person. And this is his unbreakable promise. Why? Because he staked his very life on it. So the you see, in, in whom the psalmist is addressing, the person to whom he's crying, the one in whose presence he is sobbing and wailing is the one who he says, you are the, the promise-keeping God. In fact, it is because he knows God keeps his promise that he has the boldness to pray this way. You see, he is not praying this way because he doubts that God is a promise-keeping God. It is out of his conviction that God is a promise-keeping God, that he has the audacity to say, God, why do I feel this way? If he didn't believe this about God, he, he wouldn't care about God. To, to him, he refers to God's wrath. If he did not believe in a covenant-keeping, promise-making God, the fact that God was angry with him would about have as much significance as an alien on a distant planet being annoyed with him. Why would he care? No, but this is a God who makes a promise. This is the God who has revealed himself to him, and that's, that's why he asks these questions. It is not an absence of faith that leads to this, this cry of darkness. It is actually the presence of faith that frees him and motivates him to do that because he is praying to the God of his salvation and to to the Lord, Yahweh, the promise-making God. So that is who he cries out to. But notice also how he does so. How he does so. Well, we already mentioned the fact that he does it in prayer. He's talking to God. That's what prayer is. Uh, 
most of the, the psalm is obviously his words. We're reading its verbal prayer. He's articulating his thoughts to God. Uh, but did you notice also that there's a sense in which he is praying non-verbally? In verse 9, he says, Every day I call, up, I call upon you, O Lord. That's verbal prayer. But also, I spread out my hands to you. That's nonverbal prayer. Now, some of you have been in, in a grief so deep that you couldn't actually pray. Not with words. The pain was so deep, it was so painful, it was so intense, that about all you can do was cry. There's another psalm that says, it's speaking to God, the psalmist says, you have kept my tears in a bottle. Tears can be prayer too. The spreading out of one's hands to God, that can be prayer too. In, in Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of a kind of prayer that are groanings that cannot be uttered. Sometimes when the sorrow is so deep, we can't even, we can't even put words together, and all we could do is sigh and cry and stretch at our hands, and you know what? That's prayer too. That's faith too. Because it is not whether you feel certain, it's the one to whom you reach that is a sign of faith, that is a sign of trust. He prays with words. He prays without words. Now, this teaches us that a doubt questions, even complaints, when expressed as prayer can be an act of faith. Now, that's the direction of the cry, the singer's cry. Let's look at the, what we can learn from this, the discoveries. We have a lot to learn from this, but uh, I want us to point out several things. Um, the author C.S. Lewis wrote a book called the problem of pain. And in that book, uh, it's, it's, it's an excellent book, uh, he addresses the problem of pain from a uh, kind of an intellectual perspective. And he talks about the fact that he used to, at one point when he was an atheist at, at Oxford, he used to think that this vast and seeming uncaring universe with all its unexplicable evil was one big argument against the, the idea that there could be such a thing as an all-powerful good God. And then he began to wonder, wait, hang on just a second. Why, why do I even... Why do we even have the sense that God could be good or even that a God exists after all? And as he began to explore this, he began to realize that there absolutely must be a God. And he talks a lot about the problem of suffering and pain. But, but when he wrote that book, for him, the problem of pain was, not primarily, but, but it was a lot, it was theoretical. But later on, his wife was diagnosed with cancer and passed away. And after that, he wrote another book about pain. It was called, a much shorter book, it was, it's called A Grief Observed. And in this book, he, he says that it seemed like when God needed him most, instead of there being an open door, it felt like there were, the door slammed shut and there was, there was bolting and double bolting from the inside. And he, he, he writes about this and he went to a friend and he said, has God forsaken me? 
Why do I feel so abandoned? Why, why does it feel like my cries, my prayers are without answers? And, and the friend said to him, isn't that what Jesus experienced too? I thought about that when I read this psalm because some of these words, I mean, you, can, you, can you even read these words? Oh Lord, why do you hide your face from me without thinking about those words that Jesus spoke from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that, in that moment, Jesus is quoting another psalm, Psalm 22, where the psalmist is actually feeling abandoned by God. But for Jesus, the feeling of abandonment wasn't just a feeling of abandonment. It was real abandonment. When Jesus, before he, before he passed away, if, if, you're, if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that Jesus and his disciples, they went into a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, Jesus is thinking about and praying about his impending death. And when he thought about it, he didn't say, well, this is what the Lord has for me, and I'm going to face this with courage because everybody has to die, and now it's my time to die, and, and th- this is God's will for me, so, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting of this because that's not what his prayer was. His prayer was, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It's as if he's imagining his heavenly Father extending to him this, this goblet full of a destructive poison that he's going to have to drain to its bitter dregs, and he knows what that poison is going to be. It's, it's experiencing God's abandonment, not just feeling it, but actually knowing it, actually being a reality. And that's why for those hours upon which he hung on the cross, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, why had God forsaken him? Why for those moments did he, did he feel nothing but abandonment? It is because Jesus was bearing our sins. Jesus' sense of abandonment was genuine abandonment. Why? Because he was taking all the reasons that God should abandon you and me, and that is our self-centeredness, our, our sin, our hypocrisy, our pride, our judgmentalism, and all these other things that we do, and Jesus was taking it upon himself. And if you're wondering what the very heart of Christianity is, this is it. The, the Christ, Christianity or the Christian message is not a way that you can pile up enough goodness in order to get to God. It is God taking all your badness upon himself and giving you all his goodness so that he can embrace you. That's what the Christian faith is all about. It is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that he made Christ to be sin for us, Christ who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is good news. That is the gospel. The fact that Jesus experienced God's abandonment on the cross for you and me and for anyone who trusts in him means that if we trust in Jesus Christ, we will never be truly abandoned by God. We will never experience the abandonment of God. Why? Because God tells us, He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not forsake to His foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will not, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's what we sing about. And those, those words resonate absolutely true with the words of Scripture that says that because Jesus was for a time abandoned, bearing our sins, we will never be abandoned and we will never answer for those sins because Jesus has answered for them. That's what Christianity is all about. And my friend, you can believe that. 
You can trust in Jesus. That's an offer made for anybody. You can do that in your seat right now as you're realizing that the, the work of Jesus Christ is more real than anything else. Can you imagine how much he must have loved you to do that? No one can love you more than Jesus loves you. And he invites you to trust in him. We learn from this psalm of, a, of this feeling of abandonment. It points us to Jesus who truly did experience abandonment for us. There's a second thing we learn, and that is we learn something about dealing with our doubts. Just like this singer, just like this psalmist, you can be trusting God even when specific answers don't come. You can trust God even when specific answers don't come because our tendency is to reach and grope for answers. I want answers. That's our tendency. When Job, uh, who was this man in the Old Testament who suffered intensely, he got his children. We're going to talk about him in this series. His children died. He he's lost his health. He lost his wealth. His friends were no comfort to him. His, he asked why. God didn't tell him why. God says, you just need to trust me. If God had told Job, well, I'm going to tell you why. As difficult as this is right now, you should know that uh, a few weeks ago, I had this interview with Satan, and he accused you of trusting me just because of what I give you, and he accused me of being trustworthy only because of the things I give. And because of that, I gave him permission to afflict you and to prove him wrong. And millions of people uh, for the next thousands of years will find comfort and inspiration for this story. So Job, as hard as it feels right now, there's a lot of good reasons, and I can enumerate them for you. That's not what God did. Why? Because if God did that, then we wouldn't have a story of trust. You see, God calls us not to live by answers, but to live by faith. It doesn't mean that the Christian faith is irrational. It means that it is primarily about a person. It's a, primarily about personal trust. It's, all, it's primarily about putting our faith in God as a person who invites us to trust and follow Him. And so even when you don't have answers, walking and living a long life, even before the answers come, or even if the answers never come, it's not a failure of faith. It's the definition of faith to walk by faith, even though answers don't come. Because faith is fundamentally trust in God, not trust in answers. So, for uh, one, you can learn something about dealing with your doubts. One, that you can be trusting God even when specific answers come. Two, you can have faith even when feelings don't come. See, our tendency, and this is, a, this is a pretty bad one, a pretty big one, but it's easy for, I do it, I think we all do it, is to have faith in faith. In other words, we think that faith is a matter of working ourselves into a state of confidence. That's having faith in faith. We're supposed to have faith in God, which means that we might not always feel confident. I d you might remember the story of a, of a man in the Gospels whose son uh, was afflicted by an evil spirit that caused him to convulse, throw himself in water and fire and injure himself. And, and at one point, he said to Jesus, 
Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that prayer because it's, it's saying, I recognize that not even my faith is sufficient to do this. It's not in the depth and strength of my faith, but in the object of my faith. So we have to be careful that we're not, we're not taking stock of how we're doing just by the, our level of confidence. We shouldn't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. And finally, we can learn something about helping others with their doubts. Because we have to not only to deal with our own, but we have to help others with theirs. I think we learn from this psalm that we don't need to be so quick to give people answers or to try to, an- try to give people answers. I, I read a poem, or I heard a poem a while ago, and I, I, I looked all over for it. I couldn't find it. Um, and and I, so I'll just try to summarize you, <laughs> tell you what the poem said, but it describes someone who is suffering. And they said, I was sad one day, and a friend came to me and talked to me for an hour about everything I knew. And I wished he would go away. And another friend came and just listened to me cry and sob. And after an hour, I wished he would stay. You see, Jesus in the gospel sets an example of someone who, who is a perfect harmony, perfect blending of tears and truth. In John 11, uh, the, the Apostle John tells a story about a man named Lazarus who died, and his two sisters loved him so much. Jesus loved him too much, but the, his two sisters, their names were Mary and Martha, and, and they both had questions, and they both had concerns when Jesus finally showed up four days later, and they both said the same thing, almost word for word. They both said, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. The implied question was, Jesus, why weren't you here earlier? And to Martha, Jesus said, your brother will live again. He gave her answers. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes on me, even though he dies, he will live again. And to Mary, when Mary said, Jesus, if you had been here, a brother wouldn't die. You know what Jesus did? Jesus wept. You see how, you see how Jesus, he, he, didn't, he didn't just weep and not give answers. Neither did he just give answers and not weep. It was both truth and tears. See, Jesus sets the example of, of how to help someone in their doubts and in their, in their suffering. Yes, we do need answers, and we do point people to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, who is the one who experienced ultimate abandonment from God, who is the one that we must trust in. But we also model Jesus in being with people, in sympathizing with them, in listening to them, in weeping with them. Truth and tears. This is a dark psalm, and yet this darkness, in this darkness, we see the direction is toward God, and therein is, and in that is shutting the door in despair. I don't know if you're dealing with a time of doubt, or or if you, you have in the past, or you know someone who is. What do you do with it? You pour it out to God. Because in times like that, though you may be vulnerable, and yes, there is a danger in doubting and casting aside your trust in God, it can deepen your faith. 
That excavator can be clearing away shallow and superficial thoughts you have about God and Christ to build a deeper foundation.